So we're talking about this idea of sustaining a life of faith and what it looks like to keep going in life. And passion seems to be one of those key ingredients. I'm just going to put up there that I'm just going to put up there on the front end here on our front of our time is that faith is sustained when we discover a life-giving passion. And we, when we are able to not just discover it, but cultivate it and keep it, there is something of an enormous amount of power that flows. Passion, by the way, that gives us the ability to remain resilient in the face of resistance or obstacles or challenges that will inevitably come. Because passion, we know, is one of those things that um, it just has a, an amazing ability to transform a life. It, it, I don't know if you've ever been around people who, who are more passionate than yourself. I, we, may be, we, may, we may be those people that, that we, we like to lower others' passion. Right? We may be around people, surrounded by people that th their gift is they, they, they lower the passion in the room, right? But there are some people, it seems like they have the gift of elevating others to their realm of reality. It's an amazing thing when we expose ourselves to it. I, as I said, I got the opportunity to go down to LA for, for a number of days within a, in a conference in which there was gathered people who, who are creative, who are artistic, who are uh, just in different spheres of influence and, and certainly some pastors as well. But the, the conversation was around what, how do we intersect life, creativity, and faith? And in the midst of this conference on a Friday morning, they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make a private lesson of Soul Cycle available to anybody who wants to go. And, and I had seen those pop up around the city. I'd never been to one. And so I decided with my buddy and I, we said, you know what, let's go. And, and so I didn't get in. I got on the waiting list, but we said, let's go. What time is it? It's at 7 a.m. And so I said, all right, all right, let, let's go, um, let's go. And so we make our way there, and, 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 there, and, and it just seems as people are going into the SoulCycle building, right, the, this kind of studio, whatever, it just seems like everybody is a professional athlete, you know? <laughs> and I didn't get the memo on that one. And so I, I'm, I'm stepping in, and I'm already feeling a little nervous, you know, because I'm used to, like, biking from place to place where I have the freedom to, to you know, I don't, I don't feel trapped in a room, being observed by the person behind me, you know, or to the right or to the left, or getting to witness a, an athlete in front of me just dominate. You know, I, I, I'm not used to that, right? And so I was feeling a little insecure. And I, was, I, I remember making my way in there, and they said, you, you, you got in. You, you, you got bike 41. And, and that, that, was, that would be useful if the bikes had numbers on them, but they don't. And so I, it's like bike 41. So I'm looking around, and everyone's like, man, who's this guy, you know? And, Anyway, I make my way to the bike, and as I make my way, I click in and automatically increase my fear of feeling trapped, and, and then the music starts playing, and this woman walks in, and I don't know if you know who this is, but her name is Angela Davis, and she's one of the, you know, just key people, teachers for Soul Cycle, but she's different in the sense that she has integrated what she does with her faith, and so she walks in. And I'm feeling nervous, but, but my insecurities were overcome by her passion. Because as she walked in, the music was playing, and she starts dancing, right? Which I wish I could model, but I can't. I, I don't, <laughs> she just, just imagine somebody dancing, right? A woman dancing who's fully alive, right? And she's like owning this place. And she walks in, she's dancing, and she goes, all right, everybody. You thought you came to a cycling class. You came to church, right? <laughs> I thought, wow, okay. <laughs> and she goes, all right, we need privacy. 
let's turn off the lights, right? And they go, and they turn off. I said, I, I don't mind that, you know? Don't want anyone else witnessing my uh, lack of physical, you know, strength. And so, sitting there, close your eyes. Okay. And she says, now, everyone wants no resistance when they're cycling, but listen, you need resistance. You need it. It sustains you. If you have no resistance, you're going to try to walk on water. And we all know you're not Jesus. <laughs> so turn that dial up. We turn it. And the music starts. And she says, now, I want you to imagine your life. Where are you in your life right now? I want you to imagine you're on a mountain. I want you to imagine that this mountain is your life. And you need to conquer it. And I want you to start pedaling. We start pedaling, right? And we're going. And five minutes in, like, this is inspiring, right? 20 minutes in, I'm thinking, why? <laughs> and my body is, is wondering the same thing, you know? And she gets us off the saddle and turn it up, turn the resistance up and, and close your eyes. Imagine this mountain. What is it that you need to climb? What is it that you need to overcome? What is it that, that's pushing you down? Where do you want to camp out? No camping out here, right? And, she, and then, and then, and then she, she starts reading scripture. And she starts... Now, I understand some of us may not be necessarily in a journey of faith yet. But she starts speaking of the promises of God. And of why we should never quit. Because he never quits on us. And then she encourages us to keep going. Half an hour in and I'm off the saddle. I've been off the saddle for who knows how long. And my legs are wondering why. I refuse to use this seat. <laughs> but my soul started playing tricks on me and telling me, you can do it. And my mind started saying, you can continue. And she would say, now put that resistance up. And my hand would say, no. <laughs> Don't make me. But everything inside of me would say, let's do it. And we got through the entire hour. And I tell you right now, I should have a chair. My legs, <laughs> you know, they're still asking why. But she was so passionate about what she loves and decided to intersect her faith into it. And it elevated the entire room. I'm not passionate about soul cycling. I'm somewhat passionate about voiding. Uh, <laughs> but there was something in there in which I, I found myself ignited by her fire in the best of ways. And I think about this because I think many of us, you know, we do have things we care about. We do have areas in our lives in which we, some of us, it, we, we are ignited by something. Someone gets us out of bed and gets us into our day and into the struggle of life. And we, we, we admire when somebody is walking through their lives and their circumstances with this amazing amount of strength and power. We admire it. And certainly some of us, we, we would long for that to become a part of how we behave and how we live. And I discovered something about this, this idea of passion. It, it's somewhat mysterious because in, in the time of just thinking on this and praying on this and reading on this, it seems many people know how to continue a passion. 
Many people know how to feed something that already exists or how to fuel it so that it would not die away. But very few people know how to speak into creating a passion. What do you do when it's not existing? Or when it seems to be dying? And no matter what else is going on, it just nothing is reigniting. What do you do? It it seems to touch on a mysterious quality of what it is like to be human because I want to suggest to you in our time here that when we talk about starting, creating, discovering what awakens our soul, we are now edging into the realm of the spiritual and the mystical. Because, listen, We have so many access points to knowledge and experiences and people and all kinds of different things. All we need to do is tap into some sort of computer and it is available. It's there. But you know what we don't have access to that none of that has really seemed to be able to unlock is the key to motivation. How do we uh, find that? How do we sustain that? And this is the very thing that I believe the prophet Elijah was wanting to speak into because he was speaking into a group of people who were, uh, in many ways, had lost their passion. And if you open up your handout, we'll just walk into this together. And it's in a time in Israel's history, by the way, in which they had not just lost their passion, but they had lost their ability to connect to the one who produces life. And Elijah ended up stepping into the human scene here with Israel. And he says to them, I want you, you who have, who have forsaken the one who actually produces life, who awakens your soul, you decided to pursue every other channel that is able to do it. Now, I want you to do something. Let's gather at this place called Mount Carmel. I want you to bring what you say produces results. And I will bring who I think produces results. And we'll have a comparison of who actually shows up. And so everyone comes together. And Israel is there, we're told, the leaders and the people group in Mount Carmel is in the northern part of Israel. And we're told that he gathers them and they, they go through their ritual, they go through their, uh, in many ways, religious forms, and they, nothing happens. So then Elijah steps in and he says, you had your shot. And he says in verse 30, now, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And what we're told here is that Elijah, as he steps into this place, he ends up doing something. He ends up repairing the sacred space where he would call upon God. Because in that day and age, 
Elijah was a prophet, that is a spokesman for God. And the, the idea was that he would go, prophets would go into different regions of their people and in a very public setting, they would create an altar where heaven and earth are able to meet. And this altar was significant in that he would get 12 stones that were not touched by human hands and he would make this altar, each stone representing one of the tribes of Israel. And so he makes this altar and then he, he digs, we're told, a, a trench around the altar enough for it to create a moat. And he, as he's doing this, he is creating a picture of a location where God, who is very real, is able to meet and connect with real people. And there's this intersection of the physical and the unseen. And in this, as he's creating this altar, as he's restoring it and he builds it, and it's a lot of work, we're told in verse 33 that he put the wood in order and he cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood and he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. It's an interesting circumstance because Elijah normally would have done is he would have, he would have barbecued the meat as an expression of worship to God. And then the people gathered because they agreed with this expression of worship, they would partake of the meal. But Elijah does something very different. We're told that he cuts the sacrifice, the bull, he puts it on there, and then in the midst of a three-year-long drought, he ends up asking those who are serving with him, who are with him, I want you to fill these three jars, I want you to go down to the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, I want you to fill them, and I want you to bring them back, and I want you to pour it over the sacrifice. And what I want you to do is, and then they did it. He says, now, I want you to do that a second time. So they would go down, and they would come back, and they, the second time, and then a third time, enough for that altar to become an overflowing source of uh, wet, drenched meat. On wood, with the stones, and a moat is created around. And we say, why would he do that? And we're not told. We're not told. We're just told that he did this. We're just simply told that he, he drenches the sacrifice with water, making it harder to ignite. And I don't know, I don't know if you've ever felt like your passion has ever been given a nice wet blanket. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation in which you are sharing your heart with somebody and rather than fueling your dream, there is a snuffing of it. I don't know if some of us here, even now, are in a season of life that is so challenging. The last thing we would feel is passion. At best, we would say we're discouraged. At worst, we would say we're completely hopeless. The challenges are so severe. So extraordinary. We would um, would say, 
doesn't exist in me. See, I don't know if anyone here is in that place where it seems like your life is so discouraging, the passion that has once existed in your soul is all but gone. But Elijah was in the midst of a people group who was in that place. And rather than create the perfect circumstances for this sacrifice to be awakened once again and lit, he does the exact opposite. It's almost as if he is making a statement See, if the stones of the altar represented the nation of Israel, the altar drenched with something that is not combustible represented the soul of Israel. And it's an amazing thing because here, here is the conundrum. We want, we want to manufacture perfect conditions for our dreams and passions. We desire so much to create the conditions where we may get closer to a place of seeing something ignite. And Elijah says, no, 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 that's not real life. Real life seems to do the exact opposite. It seems to put hurdle after hurdle after obstacle after obstacle in the way of what we want to see come alive. And so... Do it a third time. Do it three times. Drench it. Make it impossible for that to catch on fire. Because you want the perfect environment, he is saying. You want it. You want the right people, the right timing, the right resources, the right access to the right network. We want the right job, the right vocation. We want the right girlfriend. We want the right boyfriend. We want the right spouse, we want the right family, we want the right resources, everything we want. We want the right education, the right location, the right city, the right time. Want all of the things that we desire for something to come alive. We want everything to be perfect. And I remember when I was working with youth years ago, I remember the, one, of the, one of the hardest places to be able to speak into was this un, undeniable reality that youth long to be the right teen. And it doesn't seem to go away. Young adults long to be the right. You know what? It's infiltrated into every season of life. We long to have the right, perfect marriage and family. And we want to have the right and perfect set of circumstances in our lives so that what we represent is actually really what we are. And Elijah seems to be saying... Rather than ensuring this, this sacrifice can cook, I want to focus on setting up obstacles, roadblocks, hurdles, challenges that reflect the reality of life. Because if God is going to give somebody a holy fire in their soul, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. And it doesn't matter what the environment looks like. If he wants something to be awakened, It'll catch. And he steps into this moment and he says, uh, The time of the offering of the oblation comes in verse 36. And Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. 
and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. That this people may know that you, Lord, are God. And that you have turned their hearts back once again to the one who gives life. This is the idea. Elijah, you know, he restores the sacred. He sets the sacrifice on the altar. And then he calls on God. And this is perhaps, in my opinion, the scariest point in this entire account. Because Elijah took enormous risk, worked incredibly hard, gathered many people around him, and then he did everything he had control over, and then he let it be and took the risk. God, you're going to show up? And we're told here, why does he do this? He does this because he had done this. He says, I have done these things at your word. That is in response to God. And, I, and I'm tempted. I, I have to tell you, when I read that, I, I, I would love to be able to say to you that as long as what we do is in response to what we sense God asking of us, he will show up in the way we expect. But that's not true. There are times in our lives when we do something that we feel is a response to him and he doesn't show up in the way we expect. And so what is it? What is the key to generating something that we can never create ourselves? What is the key? Uh, I'd like to suggest it had very little to do with the words that Elijah spoke. It had to do with the fact, and I hope you hear this, that prayer, particularly prayers that uh, sustain our passion or create passion, they're really not declaring something about God. They're really declaring something about us. Because what Elijah was declaring was not anything new about God. What he was declaring and modeling for all those who saw him was he was essentially saying, God, I am here. I'm here. I'm fully here. I'm not, I'm not keeping anything back. I've put myself on the line. I've gathered everybody here. I am, I'm here for you. With everything I have, I'm going to lay distractions down. I'm going to lay other things that may pull me down. I'm going to lay my, my anger and resentment and doubt down as the best of my can. But to the best of my ability, I am here. Which is essentially what we're told when Jeremiah said this. Listen, listen. If you tell my people this, he says to Jeremiah, you will seek me and you will find me. This is God speaking. When you seek me with all your heart. It was a declaration of sorts. If you make yourself fully present to me, you'll discover I was always there. Because it's been said that God is always more ready to answer our prayer than we are to utter. And if God truly exists, then it's not really about whether or not God will show up as much as it is about whether or not we are willing to show and to be present and to be fully available. And Elijah says, I'm, I'm here, God. 
And so I ask you to answer my prayer, not because I doubt whether or not you're here, but in this case, so that everyone around me who doesn't seem to know you or has forgotten you may witness you exist. It says, then the fire in verse 38 of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. He is God. This miraculous point in which the sacrifice was overcome by God in Israel's history becomes a moment of national remembrance which God answered with a life-giving fire. And a thousand years after that moment, it would be almost like if it was foreshadowing. A thousand years, there was a group of people who were terrified, who were scared, and they gathered in an upper room. And even in their fear, even in the discouragement, they decided to make themselves present with God. And we're told, I asked them to put this up there in Acts 2, that this gathering was met and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues. And this is the best way Luke can describe it. Dr. Luke says, I don't know how else to describe it except that it looked like flames appeared to them and rested on each one of them. It, it, it looked like, Dr. Luke said, the, the way it's been described to me, he would say, is that it was almost like there was something that was invisible, became visible, and it looked like a flame. And it entered those people's soul. And here's the reality. The reality, the facts, are that before this moment, this group of people were extremely afraid, terrified, thinking their movement was over. And after this moment, this group of people transformed into a group of people who were extremely bold and courageous and stepped out of that safe upper room into hostile ground and spoke of the one whose love will never die and ended up speaking and doing in the name of Jesus what they would never have imagined being capable of doing before passion was awakened in their soul. Because here's the reality. When we talk about passion and fire, if it comes from God, it always produces life. It never destroys it. Always produces life. Always. This, this reality that we can't manufacture motivation and passion is because we are fully dependent on the reality that it is, it's, it's close to divine. So what does this say to us? It says to us a couple things I'm gonna put in our remaining moments here is that, listen, passion, passion requires commitment to the sacred places and spaces in our lives. It requires of us, if we, if we do not have it, you know what we can do, what's within our control, is to create sacred spaces in our lives. This would be one of them. But in Elijah's day, it wasn't in the temple where he asked everyone to come and gather. He stepped into their world, and he said, out here in this public gathering, why don't we create a sacred space here? 
And so it looks like saying, in my life, God, I want to create sacred spaces in my work environment where, what do we say at a sacred space? You know what we say? I am here. I'm fully present. I don't come in here with a divided, distracted, no, I'm here for you. Where heaven and earth meet. In my work environment, in my home, I want to create a sacred space and place where we say, I am here for you, God. Because I know you're already here, but I want to be aware of it. In our relationships, in our marriages, in our families, we may not have the answers. Most of the time we don't. But we can choose to say, I will no longer run away or hide or avoid or be, be considering it inconvenient. I'm going to show up. I'm going to be present for you. I'm going to be present for you, God. And my life will become a sacred life. What makes a place sacred? When we say, this is a place, um, I know it used to be this. I know it used to be something different, but whether it's my sport, my vocation, my hobbies, my families, my ambitions, my desires, I'm going to make these places into sacred places. Where when I touch them, I touch something that invites God. If we do that, we start to discover something awakens within our soul. And listen, you know what? It, it, it starts to touch into areas where we recognize this is not enough to say, I'm here. There's something more that's required. See, sacrifice is needed for passion to come alive. Sacrifice is needed for passion to come alive. We might think, wow, what an amazing thing. The heavens opened and something descended. And they got to be the passive observers. No. There was a man who decided to put his skin in the game, who decided to his own pain put something on the altar, who decided to put his reputation on the line. There was somebody who decided to take a risk for fire to descend that produced life. And we may not know what we're passionate about, and the question might be needed to be rephrased. What are we willing to pay for? What are we willing to step into pain for? What are we willing to sacrifice for? Because it's there that we might be closer to what we were created to be. It's there. What are we willing to lose something for? What are we willing to die for? We might recognize in there, see, passion doesn't exist without that. When, when we are willing to work extraordinarily hard and endure obstacles and challenges and resistance and headwinds and all kinds of hurdles, we start to discover something divine has been awakened in our soul. And we start to recognize this is, this is a miraculous thing because, listen, a life awakened by God it is the greatest evidence of his presence. It is the greatest evidence of his presence. And we might think, how do we know God exists? We know God exists 
because of those he exists within. Because of those who decided to build an altar, a sacred life. Because of those who decided to put something on line for what he was doing within their life. Because of those who decided to say, here, I'm right here. Will you meet with me? Will you use me? And you know what happens? It's other people see that and they say, they're attracted to it. What is that? And it is in that place, in that place, we get to be the messengers of the ones who say, I want you to speak life into you. I want to speak love into you. I want to speak forgiveness into you. I want to speak hope and vision into you. I want to elevate you to the best of my ability because he has done that in my soul and he's wanting to do that in yours. And we start to recognize, listen, Elijah didn't step onto Mount Carmel wondering if God was there. He stepped onto Mount Carmel convinced that they all needed to know God was there. He had become that life awakened by God. And he became the channel by which his presence was known. If there's any formula to this sustaining life of passion and faith, it would be to treat our lives as something sacred, divinely given for a purpose, on purpose, sacred, willing to pay something for it that will sacrifice, that will cost us. When we unite sacred living with sacrifice, we receive real life. Jesus said it. Anyone who comes to me is willing to lose their life for my sake will find everlasting life. Anyone who comes to me willing to never let go and clutching tightly to the life they might have, no matter how small they might have it, they will discover that even though it might be a small little thing and even though they might think they protect it, they will lose it. Because true life is found on the other side of sacred, sacrificial living. Oh, may God awaken our soul. May he breathe into the smoldering embers within our heart of passion. And may he cause us to be messengers of his goodness. May he sustain our race and perhaps use us to sustain somebody else's. God, I thank you. I thank you, God that you are fully aware of the life we're living, of the circumstances we're in, of the environments we find ourselves in. I pray you help us, God. I pray you help us make our lives into a sacred place in which we declare, I am here. I'm fully here. Will you awaken my soul? and change everything. In Jesus' name, amen.